0: This morning we are getting to the last of the Old Testament characters that we're looking at with their different sorts of encounters with God. And the encounter that we're looking at this morning is in the life of a king, uh, King Josiah. It's a bit different from all of the other encounters that we've had. Most of the other encounters that we've looked at have been towards the beginning of the Old Testament and they've been encounters with angels or Moses at the burning bush, all those different sorts of things. This one is rather different. It's about Josiah's encounter with God in his written word. It's a story of how the written word of God, the scripture of the Hebrews, got lost and then was found again, and what happened in that moment of rediscovery. So here we are Josiah's reform, because it was reform that flowed from this rediscovery. I'm going to read the whole chapter, which is not the longest chapter in scripture, but will take a few minutes and that way we'll get hold of the story. So here we go. Josiah was eight years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and walked in the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. In the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places, Asherah poles, carved idols, and cast images. Now, if you're not familiar with all of those things, they're all different descriptions of pagan worship uh, and the different implements and locations that were used to worship other gods. Verse 4 Under his direction, the altars of the Baals, that's another kind of god, were torn down, and he cut to pieces the incense altars that were above them and smashed the Asherah poles, the idols. And the images, these he broke to pieces and scattered over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He burned the bones of the priests on their altars and so purged Judah and Jerusalem. That thing of burning bones might seem odd. It was a way of, it was a method. It was a way of desecrating the altar. Once that had been done, you couldn't, it, did, it wasn't a valid, sacred place anymore, and worship was forced to stop. So it was a deliberate desecration for that purpose. In the towns of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, as far as Naphtali, and in the ruins around them, he tore down the altars and the Asherah poles and crushed the idols to powder and cut to pieces all the incense altars throughout Israel. Then he went back to Jerusalem. In the 18th year, Of Josiah's reign, to purify the land and the temple, he sent Shaphan, son of Azaliah, and that's a tricky one, Marseah, the ruler of the city, with Joah, son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the temple of the Lord his God. The temple had fallen into ruin and disrepair, and he wanted to see it, it was in his heart, to see it restored. So they went to Hilkiah, the high priest, And gave him the money that had been brought into the temple of God, which the Levites, who were the doorkeepers, had collected from the people of Manasseh Ephraim. And the entire remnant of Israel, and from all the people of Judah and Benjamin, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Then they entrusted it to the men appointed to supervise the work on the Lord's temple. These men paid the workers who repaired and restored the temple. They also gave money to the carpenters and builders to purchase dressed stone and, temp- and timber for joists and beams for the buildings that the kings of Judah had allowed to fall into ruin. The men did the work faithfully. Over them, to direct them, were Jehath and Obadiah, Levites descended from Merari, and Zechariah and Meshullam descended from Kohath. The Levites, all of whom were skilled in playing musical instruments, had charge of the laborers, and supervised all the workers from job to job. Some of the Levites were secretaries, scribes, and doorkeepers. While they were bringing out the money that had been taken into the temple of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord that had been given through Moses. Hilkiah said to Shaphan the secretary, I found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord and he gave it to Shaphan. Then Shaphan took the book to the king and reported to him, your officials are doing everything that's been committed to them. They've paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord. They've entrusted it to the supervisors and workers. Then Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book and Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Abdon, son of Micah, Shaphan the secretary, and Uzziah the king's attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the remnant in Israel and Judah about what's written in this book that's been found. great is the Lord's anger that's poured out on us because our fathers haven't kept the word of the Lord. They've not acted in accordance with all that's written in this book. Hilkiah and those the king had sent with him went to speak to the prophetess Haldar, who was the wife of Shalom, son of Tokath, the son of Hazra, keeper of the wardrobe. Great job. She lived in Jerusalem. It's like Narnia, isn't it? No, not really, okay. She lived in Jerusalem in the second district. Now she said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Tell the man who sent you to me, this is what the Lord says. I am going to bring disaster on this place and its people. All the curses written in the book that has been read in the presence of the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and provoked me to anger by all that their hands have made. My anger will be poured out on this place and won't be quenched tell the king of judah who sent you to inquire of the lord this is what the lord the god of israel says concerning the words you heard because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before god when you heard what he spoke against this place and its people and because you humbled yourself before me and tore your robes and wept in my presence i have heard you declares the Lord. Now, I will gather you to your fathers and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes won't see the disaster. I am going to bring on this place and on all those who live here. So they took her answer back to the king. And then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the men of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites, all the people from the least to the greatest. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by his pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord, to follow the Lord and keep his commands, regulations, and decrees with all his heart and all his soul and to obey the words of the covenant written in this book. Then he made everyone in Jerusalem and Benjamin pledge themselves to it. The people of Jerusalem did this in accordance with the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah removed All the detestable idols from all the territory belonging to the Israelites. And he made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord, their God. As long as he lived, they did not fail to follow the Lord, the God of their fathers. So just to help us uh, keep this story and its key points in mind, I've summarized what I see as five distinct chunks of the story. The first bit from verses 1 to 13 is about Josiah as a young man. The story of this reform took place when he was 24. The bits earlier than that were when he was aged 16 and 20. And the early story of Josiah's life showed that he had some godly instincts, God was already at work in him, causing him to see just how bad all of the pagan shrines were, on the one hand. And also, God put in his heart uh, a lament at the state of the temple in Jerusalem. God put it in his heart to sort it out, to get rid of that which was bad, and to restore what had become ruined, and yet it seems pretty clear that no one in Jerusalem, Benjamin, Judah, whichever, however far you pushed it out in the territory of the whole of Israel. There was a prophetess, which was great, but no one knew the book of the law. The book of the law had somehow become so neglected that people didn't even know it was there. It was hidden in some dusty corner in the temple of the Lord, and then suddenly discovered, this is the next bit of the story, the book of the law was discovered, and they read it, and they seem to have been shocked by what they read. And this talks here in the scriptures about the book of the Law, the Book of the Covenant, and the shock that they would have we know would have hit them was that although they knew it wasn 't right to follow these other gods, the book of the law laid it out very clearly, as Graham said earlier, God said, uh, "Do you want to choose death or choose life? Choose life The content of that the detail of that was choosing death means you choose to follow other gods who have no real life in them. The only God who is really a source of life is the true creator God who has made himself known to the fathers of Israel. If you follow the true God, then you'll have life, you'll have wisdom, you'll have health, you'll be fertile, your crops will grow, and things will go well because you're connected into the source of all true life. Now, if you don't do that, if you make another choice... If you choose to disconnect from the true God and instead to follow other gods who have no power, really, have no life, who have a semblance of helpfulness, but in reality there's there's no substance there, that is a choice for death. And overlaid on top of that, God is emotional about this. God loves it when we come to him and establish relationship with him. He loves it when we encounter him. He loves to see his life flowing into his people and doing them good. It's what he made us for. He made us to live in relationship with him. And so when that's happening, he is delighted. He's delighted for us that we're enjoying all that it is to be human in all of its fullness. When we disconnect from him and Place our focus elsewhere, look to others as if they were god he 's not neutral about that he doesn 't just say, Oh well that 's a shame he can 't because he loves us too much. I mean what parent, on seeing their child I don't know become a drug addict or something else that is profoundly profoundly bad for them. He says, oh, well, there you go. <laughs> no bother, your choice. It's not how God sees it at all. It Actually, as the scriptures tell us again and again, it arouses him to anger. And the book of the law laid all of that out and said, follow me and it will be great. If you don't follow me, ultimately... You're going to get kicked out of the land that I gave you. Your nation of Israel will be conquered and you will be taken into exile. And so for Josiah and Hilkiah and the others as they read this book, probably for the first time they had it laid out in very clear terms, in black and white, the consequences of choices that were being made around them. And they realized that the state of their nation spiritually would take them towards national disaster that what they were doing in their worship was going to end up affecting their political and military results and those those dots were joined up for them clearly and like, oh no because their worship was a mess they weren't worshipping as they should have been worshipping. fact, it seems like they got pretty much none of it right. If you go in, there are, there's a parallel to this story in 2 Kings, chapters 22 and 23. And uh, in chapter 23, it lists off a whole number of things that Josiah had to deal with that aren't in Chronicles. Let me tell you a few of them. In the temple, there were pagan priests in the temple of Yahweh. And there were some quarters that had been built for the male shrine prostitutes in the temple of God. There were things there to worship Baal, Asherah, and the starry hosts. You wouldn't have made it up, but there was a statue of horses dedicated to the sun. A few extra altars that Manasseh had put into the temple to burn incense to other gods There was a place just outside Jerusalem where they sacrificed children. The Worship was not right. (laughs) Uh, And... But what they... There were some godly people in Israel who... They knew this stuff wasn't right. But what the book of the law made clear to them was that there would be consequences there would be political, national consequences that would change all of their lives. There would be widespread social consequences arising from the nature of their worship. So the next thing was that Josiah was gutted. We would probably say that rather than tearing. Has anyone ever torn their robes? Our our youngest daughter at preschool this week um, had one of her friends come up to her, also three years old, and said, can I cut your trousers with scissors? And Eleanor, our youngest, said yes. <laughs> so when Bev, my wife, appeared at preschool to say to pick her up, the the preschool teachers were a little bit nervous because she'd taken the trousers, she'd cut them from the what's the thing at the bottom, the hem, uh, basically all the way up to the thigh, a number of times round, so that they were completely ragged, um, and. And actually, Eleanor was quite delighted. She thought, oh, she's done a wonderful thing. So probably most of us have got a story of having done something similar when we were we. But maybe don't tear our robes quite so often now. But it was very much then a sign of sorrow. It goes on to say, doesn't it, in the passage that I read that he also wept. He tore his robes and wept. So Josiah, on seeing this, on reading the word, was gutted and sorrowful uh, there was actually a very concrete result of his sorrow the exile that was promised for people who don't worship properly the exile was still going to happen but there was a new promise that came prophetically for desire from the prophetess it's not going to happen in your lifetime it will happen but you yourself, because of your humility, will experience a different future, not of exile, but instead of peace. Now, that's quite a significant thing. Because sometimes when we read lots of words and there's lots of talk that goes on, we can sometimes think that it's all just a matter of words. Perhaps it's just a game of words. Some people have got some words and some people have got others and we all talk a bit and there you go. But what this chunk of the story tells us is that individual responses to god's written word affect reality our future reality is shaped and determined by our response to these very special words lastly we read more of how Josiah began to follow the law Even more closely. There was something about this encounter with the written word of God that gave him the confidence to address some of the pagan, uh, immoral stuff that even to that time he'd not addressed. Stuff like the child sacrifice going on outside the city, he'd not addressed up to that point. Dealt with some things, not dealt with that. But it tells us in 2 Kings that following this reading of the law, he was able somehow got the courage or the conviction to deal with that and several other things that had actually been in place. It talks of him removing a pagan place of worship created by King Solomon, which was 300 years earlier. 300 years of, in the life of Jerusalem, kings, priests, people living in the city, and they just got used to the fact that Solomon set that one up and there you go. Josiah, after reading the law, even gained the confidence to deal with that. And not only did he do a more thorough job of removing what was wrong, but also did a, a whole entered into a whole new season of doing what was right. It says in the next chapter of two chronicles, you'll probably find if you've still got your Bible open that it's entitled Josiah Celebrates the Passover they got on with a festival, that God, was a festival that God had ordained, festival of the Passover, that had also fallen by the wayside. People had forgotten what that was about. They got back to it. And it says in chapter 35 that uh, it was celebrated. In, it said the Passover, verse 18, had not been observed like this in Israel since the days of the prophet Samuel. That was 350 or so years before. There was like history-making changes that went on as a result of Josiah's reading of the law. So there's the story. I've, there's five different points there. What I'd like to do is offer you three specific things that we might take away that might affect our perceptions of the Bible as God's written word and how we interact with it. The first of them is these Three ways. Okay, the first of these is to recognize that the Bible brings revelation. By revelation, I mean that there is some aspect of, that, of reality that we did not previously see that now we do. There's a genuine discovery of some, I don't just mean something that is meaningful to me. I don't just mean I have a good moment when I enjoy something that I read. We're really talking about something much more substantial than that. We're talking about the way in which none of us have a complete grasp on reality. And reading the Bible and hearing teaching that's based in the Bible has this power to open up to us reality that we didn't see before. And uh, I know that many of you will have had those moments when it's like it very much like a light coming on and illuminating what was previously unseen to you. I was just reflecting on this in the last few days and thinking about one of the times when I experienced that for myself. One of the things that I had been taught from the Bible growing up is from a few words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And I'd always been taught that to be the salt of the earth was about two functions that salt plays in our lives. One of those is that it brings flavor to things. And the other of those is that it preserves, is used to preserve things. And Practically, I'd heard people say a whole number of times something like this. Our country is turning its back on its Christian heritage one way or another, going to rack and ruin. Jesus commanded us to be the salt of the earth and to preserve that which is good. So we need to stand against any erosion in the Christian heritage Of our nation. I heard those verses spoken about more often in the context of Christians opposing social change than in any other way. And some of you will have heard those things said as well. Then one day I was reading a close parallel of those verses in Luke's gospel. In Luke's gospel, it's it's similar but slightly different. But it says in Luke's gospel that if salt were to lose its saltiness if that could happen then it would not be useful either for the soil or for the manure heap and I, it's often it's interesting it's often the way that revelations from scripture come to us at those points where we're reading and it doesn't make any sense at all because these words reflect reality Our thinking is only a partial grasp on reality. And so the points at which we read the scripture and we go, what? That just doesn't make any sense. Are often the key moments in our reading where there's the potential for a window onto reality that we've not yet seen. Because they're the things that have the, those are the moments that have the power to change our minds. To change our thinking precisely because our thinking is out of kilter. But there's something, there's a pregnant opportunity here for change. And as I reflected on that, so they understood that salt was meant to be useful in the soil. When Jesus said salt of the earth, that wasn't accidental. Or maybe not the soil, but it would be useful in the manure heap. What's that all about? Yeah, I don't think I've ever spoken about manure heaps publicly before. Uh, Probably just haven't preached on that passage. And I did a bit of research, prayed, asked God for help, and realised that actually what I think I'd known dimly, that salt was used throughout the ancient world as a fertiliser. We sometimes have read stories of armies salting the land of people that they've conquered in order to render that land barren. Well, that's true if you put heaps of salt, but actually small amounts of salt can promote the growth of your crops. And uh, in the UK, and well, it would have just been England then, I think, because in sometime in the 16th century, I think it was, there was a tax brought in on salt, and it became too expensive just to throw over your farmland. But until that time, people still, in this country, used salt as a fertilizer to aid the growth of their plants. So, of course, you put salt on the soil, and of course, you put salt in the manure heap, because the manure heap was destined also for your fields, and you'd add the salt to improve the quality of the fertilizer that you, you had to distribute. Now, that's a slightly complicated thing. It shows that sometimes a little bit of digging is needed, To get at what the scriptures mean. But for me, that was a transforming moment when I realized that what God calls us to do is not merely to preserve an existing Christian heritage, but to be agents that support new life developing, that our presence in the world ought to mean new growth occurs. Praise God, he does sometimes help us to care for and sustain existing heritage, and I'm not belittling that in any way, but I don't believe that's what Jesus was saying at that point. He's saying there's a new role, and at a point where our society has shifted as far as it has from a Christian heritage, our task is, I believe, this is, I'm not preaching this from a scripture passage particularly, I'm sharing a personal conviction, there's less and less Christian heritage for us to hold on to, that there is ever more opportunity for us to build and grow new things that contain the life of God and that will be the future Christian heritage of our children and our grandchildren. And I, for one, am glad that God gave me a revelation through the Scriptures on that reality of what he will do in our world. So anyway, the Bible brings revelation... And also this. I don't know if you ever saw this picture. These were the Bamiyan Buddhas that the Taliban blew up. When the Taliban took over a chunk of Afghanistan, these massive Buddha statues in the cliff. And they blew them up because they were pagan idols. I put that picture there because that was perceived as a most illiberal act. An act of cultural transgression demolishing someone else's culture in an entirely wrong way. That's how the story was reported. I put it there just because it helps us be honest about the fact that what they were doing there is what Josiah did in the scriptures. Josiah was most illiberal. He was not a pluralist, not a western democrat. And so to some, Even as I was reading through the story of Josiah's reform, you may well have been thinking, how is that a good story? It really reads like a cultural holocaust. The reason that... The reason that the scriptures don't interpret... We don't interpret the scriptures that way is an understanding of this bigger and more significant backdrop that the death toll and the annihilation that what would have been, what was eventually almost total cultural annihilation of exile, of conquest and exile, was much more profound than the desecration of some shrines and the the killing of their pimping, child-murdering priests. There's a Bigger picture than just the one that we might focus our eyes on. There's a reality, a true reality, into which Josiah had learnt to move the society in which he was living. Let me put this slightly differently. We live in a pluralistic society, by which I mean it's a multi faith society, multicultural, multi ethnic society. Many of us enjoy that diversity in, in many of its expressions. Um, but equally, most people find that diversity of cultures so bewildering that it's easiest just to throw our hands up and say, Well, I, I don't know. I really can't tell which culture. <laughs> or which faith is better than any other. I mean, it's just too confusing. So really we have to let everything be and to respect everyone for what they are. And yet, we also know that many cultures contradict each other at key points. And so they can't all be right. It's too easy and rather lazy and perhaps... We shouldn't allow ourselves to give in to the despair that says we'll never work out what's right and wrong because they can't all be right. Most Muslims, Orthodox Muslims, would be very clear in their belief that Jesus did not die at the cross and therefore was not resurrected. It's a flat contradiction with the central tenet of the Christian faith. We can't all be right Atheists, of course, will say that life is just a material phenomenon and there's no such thing as real sacredness in the sense that we understand it equally as Christians. These are flat contradictions. We can't all be right. And there are some realities that will do us more good than others. These different beliefs lead to different kinds of behavior as well. Um, I was having lunch uh, together with my oldest daughter, with an Im- imam and his oldest daughter a little while ago in a cafe uh, on the county road. And another a Muslim friend of his came and joined us, and we were having a nice lunch together. And this Muslim father is the father of several children, of whom two had died of different illnesses whilst young. They'd gone for care into um, hospice, the children's hospice there in East Oxford, and been cared for to to their death. Twice over, this had happened to him. He said to me, in all the time that I was there, uh, no leader from the Muslim community came and visited me at all. No imam came. They knew I was there. They knew what was going on. They did not visit up until the day that my children died. And then they came to wash and prepare the bodies as they should. He said, but all that time, every single day, a Christian leader, a vicar, came in and asked us how we were and offered to pray with us every single day. And this man is still a Muslim. He said to me, from that point on, I realized that our faiths are not equal in the care that they offer to people. And uh, we were sat there in the cafe, and as you sometimes get in uh, North African cafes, there were these sort of um, carpets with pictures on, sort of tapestry rugs around the cafe. And strangely enough, there was one just there in this Syrian cafe. There was one just there of Jesus, the good shepherd, leading lambs to a stream for water. And so I said, you know what, the reason why we Christians pay people and expect people to be pastoral and care is because pastor means shepherd and you see the rug, we understand that our God, that Jesus is the good shepherd. And so we expect that to take place in the church, in the Christian life. And they said, well, you know, we, that's just not part of how it is for us. For me, that was just one window on the fact that different beliefs lead to different behaviours. And I I trust you understand that I'm not saying that all Christians at all times act more honorably than everybody else. I'm not saying that. But it would be naive for us to think that all beliefs have equal outcomes. So we have to make, unless we're going to be either very lazy or very despairing, we do have to make some judgment calls about what's right and what's wrong even across different cultures. And uh, Jesus said, don't try and take the speck out of your brother's eye. First, take the plank out of your own. Josiah did not merely take a manifesto for social change, out of the scriptures and then impose it on society, but it began with his own heart. He tore his robes. He wept. He was cut to the quick. He realized that his own worship was just as wrong and lacking as others. He got hold of the plank in his own eye and dealt with it as the first thing that he did. Now, I've spoken several words that speak about change in our society, but that's not where God wants us to start. God wants us, when we think of repentance, this is the question that should be at the forefront of our minds. Well, two questions. What has God said to me? What am I doing about it? What has God said to me? And what am I doing about it? That is the heart of repentance that I will change because of what God's word said. If there's been any revelation, if I've had any window on on true reality opened up to me through the Bible, what am I doing about that? It's no good me jumping to start telling other people about it. Or should I happen to have some authority in society bringing about change that will affect others? It's no good jumping to that if I haven't first allowed it to get right into my heart, into my soul, into my thinking, and lined up. Otherwise, we're heading straight towards hypocrisy, which is a most unpleasant thing. Rachel O'Connell came forward with that simple picture of a wrapper stuck in your pocket, something you'd forget about. But actually... Uh, things we've done wrong. The phrase she used was a particular kind of sin when we've hurt other people. And it's still there. It's not been done away with. We do need to, to be washed clean. We, God speaks to us, prompts us to repent precisely so that we can be set free, washed clean, that the things that are in us that are dark... May become light here 's the last thing: regular washing. There are some things we just need to do regularly. Washing is one of them. Uh, mowing the lawn if you don't mow your lawn often enough, it turns into a non lawn. Uh, you get brambles and all sorts of other things and it's it 's not a lawn anymore. Concerning the scriptures, part of the law of Moses which tells us that engagement with the written word of God is not meant even to be a weekly activity, but an everyday activity. I mean, if this was written today, this would probably land with things like reading your children Bible stories before they go to bed, sticking post-it notes up with references to scripture on, buying some of that kind of um, Christian tat from a Christian bookshop that's got meaningful words from scripture in it, even if it's got a picture of a kitten next to it. (laughs) And sticking it in your house. I mean, cover up the kitten if it offends you, but see the (laughs) scriptures for what they are. Because the word of God has power. And the injunction that's given to us here is, get it around you. Surround yourself with the word of God. And... So the Bible doesn't only work in critical moments, but it works in an everyday way. In Josiah's story, they'd got to the complete mess that they had because of a lack of regular washing with the word. That's how they got to the state that they were in. It's not God's best for us to get into a complete state and then have a moment of crisis that sorts us out. He'd much rather that we lived in a place of purity, holiness, full of life and love and wisdom. He wants us to live up there, not just to recover from down there when it gets too bad. And there's a regularity that he offers to us. Praise God, we have the written word available to us. We can read it every day. In Ephesians chapter 5, it says, Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, to make her holy, and then this phrase, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. I love that phrase. Hope it lands for you as well. Washing with water through the word. That's what I chose this picture for two reasons. It's a picture of water and washing, but also, I've just this time last week I was in India. I was in India for ten days, and um, this lovely Indian girl here, and. Part of the trip that I went on with Steve Thomas, we went to visit a theological college. This is the the Indian Pentecostal Church. It's it's India's largest Pentecostal denomination. And we have a special relationship as a church here with their largest theological training college. So it's quite a privilege to be their friends. Um, But in many ways, despite having the label of being Pentecostal, though that denomination now in many, many places, has fallen some distance in their experience of the life of the Spirit. Um, it will be a very small minority of people who've ever prophesied, they'd be hesitant to pray for healing, to sh- even just to share words of encouragement with one another in community because of cultural changes that have taken place in their denomination. And it's a- I joined in this trip with Steve Thomas to go and do something that he has done every year for the last 11 years, which is to step into the college for a week and to remind them of the truths of scripture about being community, authentic relationship, and life in the spirit amongst us as community. And, uh, then, bringing that to life by prophesying over people and praying for people and seeing and praying that people would start to experience gifts of the spirit for themselves and you know the, just the delight of seeing people astonished that God gave them a word to share with someone or that God gave them a word of knowledge and their friend has got healed and all that kind of stuff but there 's a continuing need there like year on year on year, they are benefiting. From someone coming in and saying, this thing that matters to you, it's kind of got obscured again by things that crowd in. Let's just wash that away. Let's wash it away and get back to those things that really matter. We only get to do that there once a year. Thankfully, others help them in other ways. But that's the kind of thing that God wants to do with us and not just once a year. He wants to come and wash us day by day with his word. So I have three questions on which to finish. I'm going to stop. I'm going to invite you to take a moment to be quiet and to reflect on these three questions. And then Graham's going to do what seems good to him in the Holy Spirit. So they're these really simple questions. How much will you read your Bible? My prayer is more than you did but I think it's helpful to think about how much to make that real. How much do you open your Bible with your church family? Whether you're meeting a missional community, a Emmaus group of students within the student missional community, different places that people gather, how much do you open your Bibles? Question. And lastly, is, this is a more specific thing. It ties in with Rachel's picture for us about a sweet wrapper is there something specific? If there is, repent. (laughs) Because God wants you to live in reality that will do you good.